coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. This disease is something that has really taught us to be nimble. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues, is it safe for patients to have surgeries? An ear, nose, and throat surgeon discusses Mayo Clinic's updated safety procedures in the operating room. I just wanted to share with everyone who's listening uh, that you are safe at Mayo Clinic. Uh, the protocols that we've adopted have kept our patients safe, our staff safe. Please do not delay your health care. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic q and I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. Over the past year, healthcare workers have gone to many measures to protect themselves and their patients from the spread of COVID-19. The virus is spread through respiratory droplets, and so personal protective equipment to cover the eyes, nose, and throat are critical. But what if the patient needs treatment in those areas? Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, is the medical specialty that treats disorders of the ears, nose, and throat. Given how the virus is spread, how have ENT departments navigated COVID-19? Joining us to discuss this today is Dr. Devani Lal, ENT skull-based surgeon at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Dr. Lal, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Dr. Cocker. It's my honor to be here and share some of our experiences uh, with our patients and a broader audience. So the ears, nose, and throat, I mean, they are complicated uh, uh, anatomical areas in the body, and you're a specialist of all three. So can you tell us what sort of the common things that you see as an ENT surgeon? Absolutely. So um, our discipline, as, as you just mentioned, is called otolaryngology, head neck surgery. Um, so folks, your ENTs are trained in uh, diseases and disorders of the ears. That includes hearing loss, tumors that arise in the nerve of hearing and extends into the brain. Um, the nasal part is what I focus my practice on and as a tertiary care rhinologist at Mayo Clinic. And that entails treating all sorts of inflammatory infectious conditions of the nose and the sinuses, such as chronic sinusitis, lots of tumors, cancers of the nose. Um, and certainly we utilize the nose as a route to get brain tumors out through the nose and the sinuses. And that part is called endoscopic endonasal skull-based procedures. Some of the common ones we take care of are pituitary tumors. Uh, there are some uncommon tumors like meningiomas, chordomas, and certainly cancers of the nose and the sinuses are uh, something that we take care of in my department as well. The throat part entails uh, common procedures um, that are done in the community hospitals very, um, in a very straightforward fashion. Uh, those include tonsils, adenoids, oh, I forgot tubes for years. Uh, tubes, putting tubes in the ears um, are one of the most common procedures in the United States. And then uh, our throat doctors also take care of cancers of the throat. They also take care of voice problems. So uh, for example, if a singer has an acute vocal cord injury or uh, if they are polyps or nodules in teachers or uh, folks that have to use their voice a lot uh, professionally. And then we also have head and neck surgeons. Um, these head and neck surgeons treat cancers uh, that arise from thyroid, parathyroid glands. They all take care of cancers that spread into the nose, uh, from the nose or to the, from the throat uh, to the neck. Um, and that includes laryngeal cancers, pharyngeal cancers. Uh, one of the cancers we've seen a dramatic rise in are um, base of tongue cancers that are associated with the human papilloma virus. And our department uh, here at Mayo Clinic uh, has a certain unique uh, capability in treating those. 
Additionally, some of our head and neck surgeons are also reconstructive surgeons, meaning that when we take out cancers, because of what you alluded to, um, the facial uh, structure uh, is, is a means of communication. We also use the organs um, that are present in our head and neck area to communicate, talk, smell, eat. Um, and so those are required not just cosmetic reconstruction, but also functional reconstruction. So we have some uh, of our subspecialists that actually do reconstructive surgery for that. And lastly, but not least, we have facial reconstructive surgeons that not only take care of cosmetic problems, but also reconstructive surgery that might be required after skin cancer removals. Or for example, if I have a nasal cancer patient where the cancer extrudes into the um, outer surfaces, um, we, I will work with a reconstructive surgeon uh, to help with that. So that's a brief um, uh, <laughs> overview of uh, what your ENT might do. And obviously some of these are um, highly subspecialized and um, my colleagues that I work with have undertaken further training for about one or two years um, and subspecialized in certain domains. Well, things have certainly progressed since when I was at medical school. Uh, but, what, but one thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, as you know, at Mayo Clinic, when we safely see our patients, we are wearing face masks, maybe face shields and eyewear. But in your specialty, a lot of the disorders, as you alluded to, involve the face, the throat, where there's respiratory droplets. And so with COVID-19, how have you adapted your practice to safely care for patients and also take care of yourself? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, and so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll first go into history. And so uh, when the pandemic uh, was recognized to break out in the US, there were some guidelines uh, that came down from our uh, CDC and um, uh, healthcare institutions. And uh, we put a break on our practice to what was considered at a time elective. And elective is a loosely defined term to say, can this patient's care wait for more than four weeks or so without any significant harm uh, or long-term uh, issues of the patient? And uh, so we put on the breaks for a couple of weeks in March. And as you know, the pandemic evolved in different uh, geographical locations in a different fashion. And, uh, but that two week pause uh, did give us time to regroup. There was some early data that was coming out of China about uh, an increasing number of deaths in ENT uh, surgeons, particularly those who had done endonasal skull-based procedures uh, like what I undertake. And the concern was that when we um, do these procedures, we also use a lot of motorized instruments like drills and cutters, et cetera, that they were spewing out aerosols and that could um, be dangerous to healthcare providers that were involved in this care. Uh, we rapidly recognized that uh, through personal communications uh, from physicians in China that had visited our department, um, also from other colleagues within the United States. Um, and what we did was quickly pivot uh, to procure equipment that we thought would safely protect our staff. We knew that N95 masks were gonna be in short supply. And certainly we didn't wanna stand in the way of frontline workers uh, like ER physicians, like yourself, that actually had to deal with COVID positive patients. Um, we actually were able to work with the occupational health department and a supply chain and we secured a line of reusable PPE and we were conservative. We worked with our supply chain to figure out what would happen if we were to see patients that potentially could have COVID um, or 
could have suspected COVID and how we could safely uh, clean the room, um, how we could turn over the air, uh, you know, increase the air exchange in the rooms, not only in the operating room, but in the clinic. So a lot of work went on in the next couple of weeks to fortify our um, physical space, educate uh, the staff, and that included not just physicians, residents, but also each and every person uh, in the department, the front desk that helped take care of these patients. And we came to a consensus through work done by uh, our patients' practices um, committee, the hospital practices committee, the surgical practices committee. And what was really helpful in this was a healthy and open dialogue and communication that occurred between all layers of individuals that were participating in patient care. Um, once we did that, uh, we also had to take care of patients. And, and regardless of what was going on, we always had a small supply of PPE that we knew we could always utilize for patients that needed urgent care. So we really never stopped completely taking care of our patients. As I alluded to, we have a lot of patients that require care for cancers. We also take care of patients that are breathing problems uh, and some of them require tracheostomies and other interventions and that can't wait. As that um, requirement um, also extended to patients with COVID because patients with COVID have respiratory difficulties and initially the stay in the IC was a lot longer because we had no idea what were the best courses in treatment. And so um, I'm considered a senior in my department. I guess that goes with that title of professor, but, uh, but I am a little bit older than some of my colleagues who've just joined recently. And they were very, very generous. And they said, hey, you old folks, you stay away. You know, we don't know what's gonna happen to you if you get COVID. And so we're gonna do the tracheostomy and care of these patients. So they work with our ICU team to extend um, their care to patients who required either examination or nosebleeds, um, tracheostomy patients, et cetera. My area of expertise um, uh, is in the nose and the nasopharynx and the sinuses and the highest concentration of the virus is suspected to be in the nasopharynx. So that came with its own challenges uh, and certainly uh, no one that was COVID positive did not get treatment, uh, but no one in a department of ENT here in Arizona uh, was ever uh, COVID positive uh, from the care of patients. So I think that the institution did a great job in not just equipment, um, but buy-in, education, et cetera. So we were safe. The other thing we did was not only enhance safety in the physical space, uh, we obviously enforced um, strict social distancing. Uh, everyone, uh, as I talked to our um, maintenance department, put in signs and decals to space uh, people apart. Uh, sofas were roped off uh, so that people wouldn't sit in them. And then our scheduling department evolved into um, 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 a protocol where patients will wait in the car so that they didn't unnecessarily have to come in until it was time to room them. All patients that come into ENT, and this is a decision we made early on, uh, we decided to screen them, not just by symptomatology, but also to screen them by testing for COVID-19. And I have to say that I'm truly blessed to be part of an organization that was able to get ahead and get testing uh, done because initially in the, in the course of the pandemic, testing was a big problem. Um, not only uh, was testing available, but as we found out later on, the quality of the test was very, very good. 
uh, so we had very good specificity and sensitivity, meaning that if a patient had COVID, we were able to diagnose them, but also the number of patients that didn't have COVID, we didn't see a trend where they got a negative test and then later tested positive. So all our patients got tested before they came in. Um, and so that when we were examining their throats or noses, et cetera, where the virus has a high viral load, uh, we really didn't impact um, the other people uh, outside of um, people who are wearing PPE. That includes people who are sitting in the um, communal areas and uh, were not exposed to that. And that's something that, that's a protocol we follow to the day um, and uh, work with that. I tell my patients, I said, don't delay your care. Uh, we have safe protocols and this far down in the pandemic, we've got it down to, to a science uh, almost, uh, to a fault. Um, and I am not aware of any uh, patient that has contracted COVID by coming to the hospital, but I have seen se several patients uh, where, um, Care was delayed, uh, either due to unavailability of care in the community as uh, lockdowns had ensued and there was poor supply of PPE, but also fear of getting to the hospital. So I've, I've taken care of a lot of advanced cancers. I've taken care of lots of advanced infections um, and it breaks my heart to see these patients. And from what I understand of um, the trajectory of this pandemic, this disease is likely to become endemic, um, meaning that it will be part of a community uh, for the next four or five years, we'll probably have to learn new ways to mitigate and deal with this. This is not a disease that's going to go away. Um, the current vaccines that we've deployed in the United States appear to be very effective, not only to the original uh, strains of COVID, but also to some of the new strains uh, that have come from other continents. Um, and uh, I, I would encourage everyone that can have a vaccination to get it. And, and when their chance comes, uh, but please don't delay your healthcare. That's a long yeah, well answer. said. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I would say, Dr. Lal, number one, you are still very young. Uh, and number two, <laughs> um, you know, that was, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned about the testing because just, just thinking about all the precautions that we do in terms of social distancing, et cetera, but even when you have to examine a patient, your specialty, as you said, you have to get very close to the areas where the virus load is high. So um, I did not know that all ENT patients that even were seen in clinic were tested beforehand. Yes, it's a decision that we made as a department. Everyone was involved in that camp. And, and some of this may get modulated as we go forward and, and new treatments become available. But as of now, we still don't know if the vaccination status and all of us in clinical care in the department are vaccinated. But we, we know that that will protect the individual from contracting a severe form of COVID. What we still don't have data about is whether we can transmit it to other individuals. So we haven't made changes in our protocol. And this has been uh, something that um, this disease is something that has really taught us to be nimble. Um, and as new data, new therapeutics become available, we change our protocols. But I just wanted to um, share with everyone who's listening uh, that you are safe at Mayo Clinic. Uh, the protocols um, that we've adopted uh, over the last, wow, <laughs> 11 months have kept um, our patients safe, our staff safe. And please do not delay your healthcare because that is probably likely going to be more dangerous than a trip to the hospital to take care of yourself. So have you noticed, because in certain specialties, for example, patients were scared of coming into the hospital 
for fear of contracting the virus. Did you see that in your practice as 2020 sort of played out? Well, um, yes and no. I would say the vast majority of patients, um, as I said, we work for an organization that is very well regarded. Um, so the vast majority of patients have faith in uh, Mayo Clinic and they understood that our primary value of patient-centered care, first of all, meant making sure that we could take care of them safely. So I really didn't see uh, much of a slowdown initially. And then the other thing that happened is when we did have to slow down our practice um, to taking care of folks that were considered um, essential, uh, that whose care could not be delayed is that we saw a lot of patients come from our neighboring states uh, because unfortunately, uh, some of the hospitals and their communities were unable to see them. So we kept busy throughout. And even through this whole uh, surge that we had in Arizona uh, in December and January, uh, where approximately half of a hospital capacity was filled with COVID positive patients, we actually had to stop the practice. And we may have saw, seen a little bit of a slowdown, but it wasn't very much. And so we kept through with seeing patients. I have to say that COVID-19 is certainly uh, has been a very painful experience for humanity in general. And my heart goes out to those that have loved, uh, lost loved ones. Um, but it also gave me the opportunity to really appreciate the courage and generosity of my coworkers. And um, none of the nurses I know, some of our outpatient nurses were called in to volunteer inpatient. Um, I recall uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a patient that had a delayed diagnosis and had a really um, horrible infection in the skull base uh, that required surgery urgently and he was COVID positive. We, we scheduled, um, there was no questions asked, there was a protocol, the staff had the PPE, we took care of him like we would any other patient and we went home and he went home a couple of days ago. And uh, I said the courage, the generosity, uh, the communal spirit of care that has been exemplified in our department and our institution um, really portends well for humanity. And I see examples of that shared in the news across the institution and across the country. Um, and, and, and I think that makes me very glad as a human being. Well, thank you for sharing that story. And uh, thankfully at Mayo Clinic, we hear a lot about that culture, but as you said, in the healthcare uh, environment in general, seeing how everyone has come together has been completely heartening. One thing uh, which is good to see is that the numbers of actual uh, COVID-19 patients are coming down and hospitalizations, but Arizona uh, had sort of gone through that second wave of uh, spikes. How did that affect the practice uh, compared to say in the summer? Yes, so actually through the summer, we remained busy and uh, we had a busy schedule. We had to um, stop elective cases um, I think the two weeks in January, I operated my full schedule in the first week and then we had to reschedule all our patients in the next two weeks because we just didn't have enough staff to take care of COVID patients and uh, uh, patients that could wait. Again, we're talking about generosity of spirit and the grace of my patients and all male patients has been just, you know, inspirational. I mean, we just had to say, hey, we just have to take care of you probably in February. And they said, do what you have to do. 
And when you can, please do take care of us. And so uh, we're back to full schedule uh, at this time. So there was a slowdown and then uh, the breaks were released. Uh, and the last week of January, we had really good communication from our CEO, our CAO, from our surgical leadership. And that meant that when we had to apply the breaks, we did. And when we could loosen up, we did. And then when we are now ready to accelerate and go full speed in taking care of all the people that so generously and patiently waited for their turn. So yes, I've got a full schedule for the rest of spring. Now, well, speaking about your schedule, as you mentioned earlier, you are a skull-based surgeon. And so what are the sort of new developments that are happening in your specialty? Oh, I'm so happy that you talked about it because I really think that the nose is, is the most important organ in the body. And we can talk about its health, you know, role in health, et cetera. But as it pertains to new technology, I think um, COVID-19 has taught us that if you lose your sense of smell, it really, you lose your ability, not only for the pleasures of taste and flavor, but you lose your ability to smell dangerous things like fire, smoke, gas, uh, you know, rotting food, and it can make you really sick. You don't take care of your personal hygiene and actually loss of sense of smell is also associated with a higher morbidity, meaning that you are likely to have more conditions associated and earlier mortality. So it's an important condition, and that's certainly something that I am interested in researching, in, and uh, we've submitted some grants to do that. But in terms of tools and technology, um, what I do has evolved over the last 10 to 15 years to use um, cameras with magnification that can actually be transported on tubes, basically called endoscopes, to minimal access ports. And to do that, uh, we use lots of technology, minimal um, uh, you know, microscopic instruments, we use 3D holographic arrays, reconstruction. We use something called intraoperative navigation where we take a CAT scan done prior to surgery and use it to map things. We also have the ability uh, to actually scan during the surgical procedures. And, and we have an intraoperative imaging suite uh, that was recently constructed where we can do intraoperative CT and MRI. So we can actually see how much tumor or bone we removed during surgery, if we need to do more or less, or we're uh, done. So yesterday we took care of a patient um, uh, that has um, a pretty um, a challenging tumor and she looks good. One of the advantages of having all that is we can extend an early recovery, more complete resection, functional outcomes to our patients. And um, well, there's a lot of new things, uh, robotics, et cetera, that are coming through in just technology. And um, when, we, when we talk about ENT, uh, you know, I don't have the time to go through all of what we do, but one of the things that we're really um, happy about is a recent um, ear hook that uh, is a device that has come through from our Department of Audiology. And I'm sorry, I forgot to men mention our audiology division. And so they have actually tested uh, this ear hook, which is like a hearing aid, but can uh, work with uh, remote access to your TV, et cetera, so you don't have it loud. Uh, it can also be uh, used in the gaming world. It can be used for military activities and it can be used in the theater. So that's something that is coming out that is a technology that has completely evolved out of our department in Arizona. Well, I've certainly learned uh, a lot uh, from you about ENT, but I would di disagree with you about one thing. You said uh, the nose is the most important. I would say the hand number one, maybe two is, is the nose, but we can uh, agree to disagree, but not be disagreeable. Uh, Dr. Lal, anything else you'd like to add? 
I would just say, I just want to reiterate, uh, uh, and I say this to friends, family members. Uh, my husband just went and saw an orthopedic doctor today. Uh, so yes, hand surgery, very important. And you do need a hand to pick your nose, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, don't delay your care. Um, uh, there are safe protocols in most hospitals. If you don't trust someone that is locally, find a hospital close to you that has good reliable protocols and Mayo Clinic um, is, is available. Um, we, we accept patients, um, not only from every corner of the States, but also from abroad. Um, I, I think that um, that's all that I can say in, in my last words to my um, to listeners on, on this uh, show. And I, I wanted to thank you, Dr. Kakar and Jen, your um, colleague who helped put together this uh, show. And if you'll help me back, I can explain why the nose is so important. Well, thank you very much. And yes, you are. Jen is the glue of our show. Our thanks to Dr. Devyani Lal, ENT skull-based surgeon at Mayo Clinic in Arizona for joining us today on Mayo Clinic Q&A. Thank you so much. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.